Praise God. Well, I seem like a bit of a broken record, really, but every time I come, I just feel such a love for you guys, honestly. And, and I also sensed as we were worshiping that God really, really loves you and has got a special purpose for you as a fellowship. And let me just switch this on before I forget, otherwise it'll, uh, the green light's going to go on. Yep, we're in business. Great. Um, as uh, Craig mentioned the word alignment, and something sort of sparked off in my spirit as he said that. And I, I kind of saw a picture of a, a magnetic bar, you know, and you remember your, your, your science lessons when you were a kid, and you got a magnet and you stroked the, the steel nail or whatever it was, and eventually it became magnetized and you could pick up things. And I remember doing it as a teacher in Solihull School. I'd get kids to uh, have a magnet and they'd stroke the metal bar. They'd make their own magnet. Then they'd go to their friends and stroke their metal bar and make them a magnet. And around the classroom they'd go. And I just sense that the Lord is saying that he's bringing you into alignment. He's bringing you into alignment for a special purpose. And you know, you know the sort of science behind magnetism is all the molecules have to align themselves behind one another in a line because a metal bar that's not magnetized, its molecules all at random points and facing different directions. And because they've got a north and south pole, when they're aligned together, they become a magnetic force. And as God is aligning you guys as a fellowship, he's going to cause you to become a magnetic force, but a spiritually magnetic force that is capable of drawing the hearts of people to Jesus, who is the great magnet, you could say in my illustration, the one who's the originator, the one who's got the power, the one who's got the, re the energy, the ability, the drawing power to bring people to himself. And so that is the kind of prophetic thing I felt as we were worshiping just there. And it fits in very much with what I want to share this morning on growing in a discipleship culture. Because discipleship is the very practice that Jesus engaged in, of course, when he formed his band of uh, brothers and sisters. Of course, they would be following together. And through the course of their interactions in those three years that he walked and lived and spoke to them, he would have been bringing a sense of alignment to the kingdom purposes that he came to represent and to bring. And discipleship is all about doing just that. It's bringing people into alignment. And when more of us, or the majority of us, have come into alignment because we've been exposed to a discipleship culture, then people coming from the outside quickly pick up the values. They quickly pick up the fact that Jesus is here and he wants to use me as well because he loves me enough to bring healing to my situation and my heart so that I can also come into alignment. And it becomes an atmosphere it becomes a culture. It becomes the norms of behavior because that's what God's doing. And I really feel as I, I uh, prayed about bringing you this word this morning that God is causing you to become a church which has a discipleship culture as, many, as, as well as other things too, no doubt, but a discipleship culture. And, and it's formed in a church when emphasis is given to forming relational discipling relationships, or intentional, I should say, intentional discipling relationships, and then it becomes the norm. And, and there's a little scripture I want us to look at next, and see if it, this kind of clicker works. Yes, it does, praise God. Uh, I've called it cleansed to be a vessel of purpose, and this is taken from 2 Timothy 2, as you can see, verses 20 to 21. It says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, 
but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So you can see in that particular passage, um, Paul is urging Timothy to become a good disciplined soldier, one who exhorts others to embrace change and rise into greatness. So that was the passion that Paul had for Timothy, and he was exhorting Timothy in that passage to become a good soldier. And he mentions three illustrations, really, of this approach to alignment or disciplined life to become a disciple of Jesus. He starts with the soldier, and he says, no soldier gets, in, gets entangled in civilian pursuits. In other words, they're on mission. They've got purpose. They're focused. They're aligned. Okay? And then he talks about an athlete training in order to compete with the rules so that he eventually gains the crown. Then he likens it to a farmer, hardworking, tilling the soil, doing all the work the farmers do, and he should therefore enjoy the first fruits of the produce that come from the ground. And so all this passage is telling us is to come on, use the aligning ability and grace of God to come to a place where you eventually emerge as a vessel of honor that is fit for the master's use. And it's quite interesting, really. And I've created some application in the next slide. So, the great house. That's what the passage starts with. Let's flick back. And now in a great house, okay? So, the great house represents the church. And the biblical proof of that can be found in many passages, but here we go in Ephesians 2. So, then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, God's household. Yeah? Growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So this is talking to us as a church, as a body, the great house. In a great house, there are vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And what is that saying? It's saying that for some of us, we've matured to a point where we know vessels of honor. Not that other people are dishonorable in a negative sense, but in a sense that when we come from the world and we just get born again, or even just before we're born again, we are vessels of dishonor because we have a sin problem. And even after we get born again, we have issues of selfishness and issues of insecurity and so on. That's all got to be cleansed in order to make us fit for the master's use. Vessels cleansed of honor, as it were. So moving forward, the vessels, that's us, as you've probably gathered by now. And there's a scripture to prove that. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. And the jars of clay were pots or vessels in those days to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So you can see that the great house is the church. We are the vessels. The question I'm going to ask myself is, am I a vessel of dishonor or a vessel of honor? And by the grace of God, I'm becoming more of a vessel of honor than I was a few years ago. But I've still got a ways to go in order to become the best vessel I can possibly be, if you see what I mean. Moving forward, cleansing ourselves. This is the application of the cross. Because the scripture says here, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Can you see that's a process, a process of cleansing, a process of recognition and becoming aware of the need for me to cry out to God and receive grace to be able to be cleansed in those areas of my life. And that's what discipleship's all about. 
And our initial relationship, of course, is between God in Christ and ourselves. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. And so when we pray, when we read the Word, when we come before Him, we allow Him to search our hearts and prick our consciences. That is part of the discipleship process. It's part of the cleansing process to bring us to become vessels of honor. But also God uses one another. Of course, Jesus demonstrated that from the very first day when he called his 12 disciples together and he discipled them and they discipled one another. And then when he was just about to go up to heaven, he said, go into all the world and make disciples and teach them to observe all I've commanded you. In other words, disciples make disciples that make disciples. And the fact that we're here today is because of that great commandment all those years ago that has been passed down. And just like in my class of kids, when I said, okay, you've got a magnet now, which you just made from the great magnet, you go and magnetize other people. And in the same way, we can magnetize, we can disciple one another to become vessels of honor. And the last point, the result, honorable, set apart, poised, and ready. I like that sort of sense of being on the starting block of it and waiting for the gun to go off. You know, you're ready, you're, you're, you're fit, you're trained, you're eligible for the race, and away you go. And that's what God is, is conjuring up in imagery within our hearts this morning. Useful to the master, which of course is the product of a discipleship culture. Okay, maybe get not too excited, Martin. Right, I'm trying to really communicate this as quickly as I can to get you fired up in your hearts to say, yeah, we want to be part of a discipleship culture. I want to contribute to a discipleship culture. I want to come in alignment so I can be one who's fit for the master's use. Amen. So our call is to submit to the lordship of Jesus, pushing through our natural reactions based on fear and postmodern relativistic mindsets. That is the problem, of course, and has been from, from, from the beginning of time, that the world has this insidious capacity to dampen our enthusiasm, to distract us, to kind of make the magnetic bar demagnetize, as it were, by causing us to become all random and not aligned with one another. And we need to push through that stuff. And it comes at us every day, doesn't it? In workplaces, in the attitudes of our colleagues, in comments over the, over the garden fence, whatever it might be, you can see there is this propensity of the enemy to draw our hearts away, whereas Jesus is trying to draw our hearts to himself. And so we need to push through. And that takes an act of the will, a determination, it comes from a revelation of a vision, you could say, that God has given you personally that you are to be part of this great cause of the kingdom that God is working amongst you as a particular fellowship. So submit to the Lordship of Jesus. That's our call. Also, our call is to give our lives to the heart and the vision of the Lord in this church. You know, you're a great church. Let me tell you that, you know, as from the Lord, you are a great church. God's got a great purpose for your lives. This is a great cause to live for. You know, and none of us are perfect, and we've got a long ways to go, and our magnetic bar isn't very as magnetized as it might be, but it's becoming more and more magnetized as we come into alignment with the things of the Spirit. So commit to the cause. Give your life for the cause, even. I don't mean in any sort of bravado kind of way, but in terms of decision. My heart wants to make a contribution to this cause. And what is it, Lord? 
What is my part to play? What am I being discipled for? What state am I in terms of the vessel in this great house that God is causing me to become? The other call is to contribute towards an atmosphere that facilitates and makes the norm the process of cleansing so that we all become vessels of use. You are called to be a discipler. And, and often the problem when we are in a context like this, when you're listening to me and I'm doing the stuff up here, is that you feel like a spectator. But, you know, church isn't a, church, a place where we're all spectators 24-7. A church is a place where, yeah, you may need this context uh, as a kind of a sense of inspiration and prophetic word to your hearts, but then each one of us becomes a contributor Otherwise, we have a, a, a consumer mentality rather than a contributing mentality. And Jesus never birthed consumers. He birthed contributors. And discipleship is all about coming to a place where we make our contribution. And when you're prepared to make your contribution, you will come alive in a way you've never known before. Because God is aligning your heart for a common purpose. That's the body of Christ in, active, in action. That is the kingdom of God being expressed through you. The rule of Jesus Christ, as we looked at yesterday, is coming through you, 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 and me, of course, for each one of us, <laughs> in order for God's glory to descend upon a church like this, to bring to pass all that he's got in his heart for you. Our call is, to, is when we reach this point, such an ethos becomes viral and starts to affect people in many different ways and contexts. People start imbibing your corporate values, and they align their lives accordingly. It's an exciting thought that happens. We automatically then start loving, leading, here's some alliteration, liberating, and launching one another. Let me say those things again. We become loving. And no, it's not a love that's a kind of phileo love or a human love. Yes, it's that too. But it's also an agape love. It's a capacity of love that only, can give, only God can give you. And when you start loving at God's intended level, something will kick off in your life and the lives that you're touching. So we are called to love one another, to lead one another, not in some kind of controlling sense, but in some inspirational coaching sense, mentoring sense. We are called to liberate one another, and we are called to launch one another. Amen? I'm launching you into your ministry. And when I was a pastor in a church in Ulster many years ago, we used to have a thing called Ministry for Ministries. And we'd get people to around our house, and we'd spend an hour with them, and we would basically help them identify what their calling was, what their particular identity was in Christ, and then we would launch them into it, and even lay hands on them and say, go on, become whatever God has called you to become. And so launching is an important dimension as well. Amen. So why is discipleship so vital? Well, there's a difference, as we all probably know, between being a Christian, which is only mentioned three times in the Bible, and a disciple, which is mentioned 258 times in the Bible. And what does it mean to be a disciple? Let's have a look at my next slide here. Okay, well, one who loves Jesus with their whole heart and desires to demonstrate that by loving his people and loving those he seeks to win to himself. Hopefully you're ticking the box and thinking, wow, I'm a disciple. Because that's your heart too, isn't it? As I read that out, you think, yeah, that's me. Amen? 
Come on, feed me back. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so also one who is willing to be developed and become transformed into the likeness of Jesus, making Jesus the Lord of all. Amen to that? Yeah, good. Got a great bunch of disciples here. One who is in mutual, mutually accountable, open relationships with more matured people doing life together. Amen to that too? Yeah? Now that's a little bit kind of sensitive because, you know, when you're in an accountable, open relationship, you have to be vulnerable. There's not many skeletons can remain in cupboards unless you've got one with a big lock and key on it. And eventually even that will get opened in the relationship because that's what it's all about. So that we become transparent and cleansed. Because if you lock your skeleton in the cupboard, it's a bit smelly, isn't it, after a while? And it's got to be cleansed out if you're going to become the vessel of use that God wants you to be. So that will happen in those mutually accountable discipling relationships. One who is engaged in a lifestyle commitment that allows others to teach them to become more like Jesus in every facet of life. And, you know, audibly, visually, and kinesthetically, which means, you know, teaching people to go and do practically what it means to help and love and be disciples of one another. That's like tell, show, and do. So those relationships, they, they not only sort of make you squeaky clean, but they also equip you and cause you to become ones who are eligible and trained to actually fulfill the call of whatever your identity demands of you. So that's what, I mean, we could go on and have another three or four or ten slides about what a disciple is, but I kind of wanted to capture it in that slide there. So... Let me just turn this over, and uh, we'll go to the uh, conclusioning bit shortly. So do you all have a firm conviction regarding the importance of discipleship? Yeah? You, you, you're on board with that? You feel convinced that this is what God is calling you to do as an individual and as a church? I, I, I can sense that you do, and that's wonderful. So why is it important? Because discipleship creates purity, relational transparency, and dependency, which of course is at the heart of God. And I, I frequently mention, because I think it's so important, that Jesus fulfilled all of those while he was on earth. He was uh, pure in every sense. He was without sin. He was transparent, and he was able to share his heart, as I say, with his disciples, and of course with his Father. And he was totally dependent upon his Father. In fact, as I mentioned before in John 5, he says, For the Son of Man, referring to himself, can I do anything? Can't do anything. I can do nothing, he says, unless I hear from my father. He was totally dependent. And that's what discipleship does. It causes us to align ourselves with a relationship with God and with one another that makes us pure, transparent, and dependent. And, of course, the spirit of the world wants us all to be independent. And we're trained to be independent. We're trained to sort of be self-sufficient and so on. And while that's not a bad thing, on the one hand, in terms of human life, in our relationship with God and one another, dependency is the order of the day because it reflects the heart of God. Because if Jesus could do nothing apart from being in a relationship with his Father who we heard from and saw what he was doing, then we too need to be the way. And in fact, in John 15, he says, you know, referring to the vine and the branches, for apart from me, you can do nothing. And so when we're in this discipling relationship with Jesus, we are dependent upon him. And then we become dependent in the right way, not a codependency. We're not talking about that at all. 
And, and there, is, there is an independency of getting on with it and being reliable and being trustworthy and you haven't got to be told what to do. And that's all good stuff. But the dependency is on that relationship. I need my brothers. I need my sisters because we are a family. And we are a body. And if my body is disconnected and, dis- and, and, and floating around, it's not going to be very functional. I need to be connected to my brothers and sisters in this kind of accountable relationship. Okay. So, contributing towards a discipleship culture. Jesus' discipleship began even before the person was a follower. So he, wasn't, he didn't wait until they became his follower, and then, oh, you've been my disciple now. As soon as he met somebody, Jesus started to disciple them. And here's a little quick example. <clears throat> you know where that story's from? Neither do I condemn you, go and from now on sin no more. So he, he found this poor lady, bless her who had been caught in the act of adultery. And why was she even doing that? Because of the tragic background, probably, that she came from and the abuse that she'd had and the, the poverty that she was engulfed in. And these self-righteous Pharisees threw her before Jesus. And uh, there she was sobbing. And he, he wrote in the, in the ground, didn't he? But what he wrote, we're not sure. But I think he was basically illustrating the fact that they had just as much sin, his accusers, as she did. Uh, and I won't go into the, the, the sort of Judaic law, but there is uh, an account I read recently that because they hadn't done what the law required in this situation, in other words, they didn't bring the man as well as the woman to bear upon uh, the situation according to the law, then they were transgressing the law by just doing what they'd done. And there's other things as well that, according to the Levitical law, that they hadn't done in this situation. And so Jesus was exposing the fact that they had also sinned in the manner in which they'd done what they'd done. And apparently when, when it is done correctly, the high priest would write in the sand of the temple the sin that was being committed. And so they hadn't done that. Also, it would only be done on the uh, evidence of witnesses, and they didn't bring any witnesses. So on three accounts, they were sinning and transgressing the law just as much as this woman. And that's probably why he wrote in the sand. He was illustrating to them, look, you haven't even done the writing in the sand bit of what the law requires. And then he said, if any of you has no sin, cast the first stone. And of course, they dropped their stones, and they left. And so in that act of discipleship, he brought forgiveness to this woman. He brought an inspiration to her heart, an alignment with the things of God, a cleansing of her vessel to the point that probably she followed him for the rest of her life. And he brought discipleship to the Pharisees by illustrating their self-righteousness and causing conviction to come upon them to the point where they dropped their stones and they walked away. And so Jesus discipled people even before they became followers of him. And we are to see that in our interactions with our workplaces in the world and wherever we are, in our families even, we can be disciples and disciplers of other people and bring them into a place where they're connecting to God because of his love and his grace shining through our own hearts. His aim was to create an organic environment of love and faith that made it hard for his followers not to grow. Okay? And that's the whole point of a discipleship culture. It becomes hard not to grow in a church like this 
because it's so loving. People are so aligned. They're so knowing their identity and functioning, and they're uh, contributing towards their cause that it becomes difficult not to grow. We used to say a saying is a little bit naughty, really, when we were in the church. We say you either grow or you go, and and that's that's a bit harsh, isn't it? I know, but but there's something of. Oh, I like that inside me, you know, because it's real and gutsy. You know, if you're going to be part of this church, we're going to grow. You know, we, yeah, we, you can be spectators for as long as it takes, and we'll love you, and we'll, we'll put the cup of hot chocolate in your hand when you need it and so on. But there's got to come a point where you grow up. There's got to come a point where you start aligning yourself. There's got to come a point where you're willing to be cleansed because you're in the accountable relationship. Because this is a discipleship culture. And people grow here. And if you're not careful, after a year or two or three, you're going to get fed up and you're going to grow because it's a, you're going to go. Because it's, it's a kind of environment that, that draws through love and grace and patience and, and all the joy of the Lord, people to Jesus, to alignment. And that's the whole point of being a discipleship culture. Okay. That's right. So he created an atmosphere of relational, unconditional love. This is Jesus in his discipling culture. In, uh, let's read that again. He created an atmosphere of relational, unconditional love and forgiveness, even towards his enemies. By this, he says, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And you know, love is the universal language, isn't it? Everybody responds to love. And when we engage as disciples in loving just like Jesus did, then people will be drawn into such a culture. He built an expectation ethos of faith that drew heaven down to earth with his kingdom power. Here's another scripture. They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Where's that from? The feeding of the 5,000, yeah? And if you read the passage in Matthew 14 and other parts of the, of the different Gospels, you will see that Jesus started the process of multiplying the bread and the, and the fish. So in other words, he broke it, the scripture says, and he gave it to his disciples, and the disciples gave it to the people. So can you imagine this? They're all waiting now, thinking, because Peter would have said, you know, I'm going to get a brownie point from Jesus. I'm going to tell Jesus that these people are hungry. And he needs to have compassion on them and send them away to go and get some fish and some bread. And so he must have thought to himself, hmm, Jesus will think I'm a good, good disciple because I'm caring towards the people. But then Jesus turns it back on him and says, you go and feed them. And so they're there with their knees having a fellowship meeting and knocking together. As, as he sort of breaks the bread and distributes the fish, and gives them a portion each. And so you can imagine a little loaf of bread and uh, some fish. And then he breaks them up. And there were 12 disciples. So they only had a little tiny bit in their hand. And they're thinking, 5,000 people? Are you joking, Jesus? In other words, he was, count he was producing a faith environment and an expectation ethos for them to go and do the miraculous. And that's, again, what happens in the discipleship culture. God stretches us, takes us out of our comfort zones into a place where we have to do what we feel we can't do. That's all part of discipleship. And so eventually, can you imagine how they must have felt at the end of that miracle? They would have risen from there right up to there, wouldn't they, in their faith and their sense of what I can do in God. And a discipleship culture will stretch us in those kind of ways, just like Jesus did with his discipleship culture. He taught and modeled a spirit of hope for all mankind. 
Go and tell John what you will hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. In other words, when he told the people, come on, you've seen what's happened in, through, through the miracles I've, I've done. You've seen what's happened, even your own hands. Go and tell people, this is a culture of hope. This is a place that people can come to who are broken and who are needy and are desperate and lonely, and they will have miracles occur in their lives because this discipleship culture creates hope for mankind. That was the passion that was within the very essence of this culture. He taught and modeled an attitude of meekness and servant-heartedness. I've, I've skipped one slightly, hang on. He taught that there is great freedom when we confess our faults. That was the next one. And become accountable to one another. Here's James, who would have picked this up from Jesus, who says in James 5, 16, confess your faults to one another and pray for each other that you might be healed. So this discipleship culture was a place where people who were sinners could come and confess their faults and be loved and be forgiven and be accepted and not judged and not criticized. That was the culture that Jesus created. And the one I just mentioned he taught and modeled an attitude of meekness and servant-heartedness. Sorry. Go back. There we go. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And you know the context of that? The lowliest servant in, in any household would be the one who washed the feet. And he was saying, you've got to become like the lowliest servant. Not that we are groveling or we empty ourselves of any sense of... of um, you know, a sense of respect and, and, and well-being. We're not talking about that at all. But we're having a heart and an attitude that has joy to serve those people. I always remember reading a book about the Salvation Army. And a recent raw recruit had been saved and brought into the army back in the Victorian times. And his job was to black the boots of all the soldiers in his, uh, in his brigade, as it were. And he said, night after night, with tears streaming down my face, I began to give God thanks for the privilege and the honor of blacking the boots of my brothers and sisters. That was the heart change. Can you see that? It's a heart change. It's not a groveling thing. It's a noble thing. And Jesus demonstrated that by washing the disciples' feet. He gave an example of servant-heartedness. That's, again, part of what I'm talking about when I say a discipleship culture. Okay, let's skip down, I think, because we need to get on and conclude this. <clears throat> now, everyone in our missional family has a next step in terms of this process of cleansing. So I wonder what yours is. I wonder what mine is. Now, I've got some suggestions here in my slide. And I want us to always remember that the way we progress in this is not by, in any sense, striving, but it's by abiding in Jesus, recognizing we depend upon him, and knowing that we know that we know that his grace is sufficient and his grace is available for our needs. So let's have a go. So here's what I've called the process of cleansing for maturing disciples. First one, 
become aware of God and his desire and capacity to transform you from death to life. Now, that's somebody like the woman caught in adultery who was not even a follower of Jesus. And some folks here may not even know Jesus yet. You're certainly not like the woman. I'm not saying that to you at all. But I'm saying that you don't know Jesus. You haven't found him as your personal savior. You may have even been coming to church for a while, but something inside of you knows that you haven't really made that commitment to come to him and be transformed from that place of death to life. So that might be your first starting point. Secondly, experiential death of your repentance and faith in the forgiveness of Jesus. Have you come to that place? I would imagine the majority of us have. So we've had that experience of applying the death and resurrection of Christ through repentance and faith, and we feel, we know we are forgiven. We know that should we die tonight, we will go straight to heaven because of the grace that's running in our veins. Your grasp and experience of the meaning of water and spirit baptism. These are the process of cleansing. This is the process of discipleship. Have you been water baptized? Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Are you able to sense God's power working within your hearts? Next one, the freedom in which you engage in heartfelt worship and praise. Maybe you're somebody who's a little bit kind of stiff in this area and you don't find it easy to be uh, full of joy and exuberance when we come to worship. Or maybe you're just a quiet nature, which is fine, of course. But if there's anything that's stuck inside you and you know it, as I say, then this is the next stage for you to be cleansed as we are moving forward in Christ. An increasing understanding and application of the Lordship of Christ. In other words, you're making Jesus the Lord, the King, the one who dictates in a sense, but in grace and love and gentleness, the way of your life, the one who guides you, the one who, who you submit your heart to. That's what it means to make Jesus Lord. So we're then coming to an understanding of that. The next step, awareness of, of and functioning in my gifts. In other words, I know my new creation identity. If you're not sure, that might be the next process, the next step of cleansing from you, for you. Witness of the grace of God in sharing the gospel. So you find you're able to share the gospel and you've seen people's lives transformed in response to your sharing the gospel. If that freaks you out, maybe that's the next step for you. Your full commitment to your local assembly. You're committed, but not just to, inter- to attend the meetings, which of course is vital and very, very good, but you're part of the contributing group, those who contribute to a discipleship ethos. And finally, an emerging leader according to your call. So those who've come to the last point of leader, they should, not we're really being in any way judgmental here, and this is between you and God, I've worked our way through there and say, yeah, I feel by the grace of God and for his glory, I can say yes to those things. Because leaders lead us into an expression of a discipleship culture. And so, where are you? That's what I'd ask you and ask me. Where are we on that particular uh, ladder, you might say, of progression in cleansing? We could have had lots more in there as well, but that will be okay for a starter for today, I think. And so finally, we just got about two or three minutes left before I need to hand back the mic. Here are some practical pointers as you develop missional families that disciple one another. Meet in various and a variety of different contexts. Do life together missionally. It's not a come to church on a Sunday type of approach to be in a missional family. It's an everyday thing. It's doing life together. 
involve food. Who said hallelujah to that? Refreshments, whole families, fun, model values, just in everyday life. Use testimonies freely and informally by just chatting about what Jesus has done easily and naturally in every sort of context, just like our sister did this morning to the guy on the tip there. Have open houses, share, do life together. Prioritize your gathering time, so diarize them so they happen. And again, it's not just Sunday. You know, we're going to go and hike up Snowden on the 21st of February or whatever it is. You know what I mean? So you're prioritizing these times of doing life together. That's so important. Otherwise, the year just goes by and you think, oh, good intentions haven't happened again, you know. Stop focusing on information. And we're very good at that. But start focusing on transformation. God wants to transform us. You know, we must not equate maturity with knowledge. And here's a good little quote here. This is from quote from Deliberate Simplicity by Dave Browning. I am convinced that the gap holding back most believers is not the gap between what they know and what they don't know. It's the gap between what they know and what they're living. We're educated beyond our obedience. And it's a good little pointer there, isn't it? And so, in a sense, that's what I wanted to share. And I've got, and we're not going to discuss it now because we're out of time, but if you wanted to discuss this on your Sunday roast later or even in your cell groups, whatever you care, they care, here's three questions that you may want to reflect upon. Where do you think you are on the process of cleansing? That's easy to remember. You could even ask that question, can't you, as soon as you start taking into your turkey or whatever it is today. Share what aspect of discipleship you need to progress to the next level. What do you need to take you to the next point? Finish by praying about what you've shared. Well, maybe you'll get onto that or not. But, but think about this stuff. God is speaking, I believe, and it's not to glorify me at all. It's just, I'm just a vessel, a representative of what I feel he's saying to you as a church. Come into alignment and start bringing others into alignment as you come into alignment because God is creating within you a discipleship culture. Craig, thanks a lot.